0: Our psalm reading this morning comes from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. We started last week a new series uh, that we're entitling The Spiritual Rhythms of Jesus, and we're trying to take our cues for spiritual formation from Jesus' life and his teaching. And we read for you earlier the passage in Luke, Jesus' invitation to repentance. And we see through the Gospels that it's a very... uh, divisive call because there's basically two responses to Jesus's invitation to repentance. Those who play it straight, those who have their lives together, those who are well-behaved, it goes over their heads. These people seem to be the farthest from spiritual health. But on the other hand, those whose sins are obvious, those whose lives are conspicuously flawed and broken and are willing to admit it, these are the people that are closest to spiritual health. And in this series, we've been trying to link Jesus' life and teaching to the Psalms, his prayer book, the prayer book that he would be intimately familiar with. And we see in Psalm 32 an invitation to repentance, and we see see two very different responses. We see this foreshadowing, Jesus' teaching on spiritual health and growth. And really briefly, we're going to look at three things. David's troubling isolation, David's remarkable insight, and then David's spiritual restoration. So first of all, his troubling isolation. The psalm says, of David. Now, we don't know the circumstances of the, of the psalm. We don't know what he's dealing with, but something is wrecking him spiritually. And he says, first of all, that when I kept silent, my bones wasted away my bones wasted away we see here the destructive power of silence and of hiding something has happened in his life that has created guilt we saw that in verse 5 and it's so powerful that he's experiencing physical manifestations of this guilt that is lying in his heart In his secrecy and his hiding, he is wasting away physically. Maybe that sounds far-fetched. Maybe that sounds a bit extreme. But we're learning more and more in the field of modern psychology um, about how interconnected our bodies and our minds are or for the Christian, our bodies and our souls, that they're interconnected, that they're so intertwined. And we see, for example, that people with more stress, people who are more anxious, more worried, generally live shorter lives than their counterparts, who are more easygoing, who have less stress in their lives. David is saying that his spiritual condition, his isolation, his hiding, his silence, is causing his bones to waste away. This is troubling, right? But he says something else. He's diagnosing his own spiritual condition, and he says that he's groaning all day long. There's an obsessiveness about his condition. His hiding, his silence, not only is affecting his body, but he can't stop the replay in his mind. I quoted for you in the front of the bulletin A.E. Taylor, who was an English philosopher of the last century, and he gave a couple of lectures called The Faith of a Moralist. And he says, Nothing is more characteristic of the human sense of guilt than its indelibility, its power of asserting itself with unabated poignancy in spite of all lapse of time and all changes in the self and its environment. It is only a man with the mentality of an animal who can reconcile himself to the comfortable view that what he has done amiss is washed off by punishment or made good by subsequent better conduct. Nothing is more characteristic of guilt than its indelibility. Don't we understand David's predicament? Don't we understand this quote? That when we fail in a big way, when we botch life, when we blow it in a conversation, when we overreact and we allow our anger to spill over and to harm someone we care for, when we're misunderstood and someone is really mad at us, isn't it so hard to stop thinking about those things? We find it impossible to stop going back over the circumstances and replaying how it should have gone how we wish we had represented ourselves, what we wish we had said, what we wish had happened. We obsess about changing these past circumstances or that person's opinion. That's a form of guilt, that's shame, that's insecurity because we need that person. We need life to clear us of some wrongdoing or it just keeps playing over and over Then he says in verse 4, your hand was heavy against me. Now, this is intriguing. What does this mean? Maybe our first thought is to assume, well, God is punishing him. David has done something wrong, and now God is handing out retribution. But that's not really how the Bible talks about sin and consequence. As you read it carefully, you don't see karma. You don't see quid pro quo, where God is lying in wait to pound you when you botch it. No, what David is experiencing is what Derek Kidner, the commentator of of, uh, Psalms that I really love, he says what David is experiencing is the disquieting pressure of God's direct attention. Isn't that a cool line? The disquieting pressure of God's direct attention. It's not God hunting David down to punish him, it's God's relentless pursuit of David's restoration. But it's scary, it's disquieting, because this means that David can't hide anymore. This means that David has to open up. David has to be honest. He has to deal with God as he is and deal with his circumstances as they are, rather than how he wishes them to be. He must expose himself to God's attention, and it's disquieting. But David finally changes In this psalm, you see a transition. He decides to open up. He was silent. He was hiding, and his bones wasted away. But he decides to open up, to be honest, to receive God's offer of reconciliation. And we get David's remarkable insight. He says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what does he find? What does God do? How does God receive him? You forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, we don't know the circumstances of the sin or sins, but we know that David is a man of great contradiction. He's a man, the Bible says, he's a man after God's own heart. He's a writer of so many of the songs of praise that we have in the Bible. His joy in God and his exuberant worship are astonishing. And yet at the same time, we know from history that he had someone killed so that he could take up with his friend's wife. He's a man of violence and war and seemingly insatiable appetites. We don't know exactly what's going on, but we do know that there's enough in David's life for him to be racked with guilt. Well, let's pause for a moment and think about what this tells us encouragement that's here in this reality that we see in man in David a man of great contradictions a man of sin a man who has exceeded all of us in transgressions and yet he has an audience with God God invites him to be forgiven God doesn't cut him off even knowing his transgressions And Jesus tells us that God doesn't look at the outward appearance, the outward behavior, but instead God looks upon the orientation of the heart, what's going on internally. And friends, if we're going to grow spiritually, if we're going to become mature, then we have to experience this dynamic. We have to understand God's response to David. One of the most common errors in thinking about spiritual formation, and it's quite understandable because this is how Our everyday world works it's how we gain approval and standing before our peers it's to perform better it's to change and reform our ways when we get a mediocre performance review at work we vow to do better next time when our spouse is disappointed in us we promise to change our ways and try harder and do better next time when we're involved in some pattern of sin we say i won't ever ever do that again But notice, that's not David's way. Whatever the circumstances, he doesn't vow to make amends. He doesn't say, God, I'm now going to balance the scales. I'm going to try real hard to not mess up next time. Instead, he simply praises God for his forgiveness. If anything, it's presumptive. We don't get a list of shortcomings. We don't get this long confession where David lists everything that he possibly could have done wrong so that God could forgive him of each of them. He simply presumes upon God's grace. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and who, in whose spirit is no deceit there's nothing in here about doing better next time there's nothing in here about changing the the curve of his spiritual behavior the key thing is that he simply opens himself up he comes out of hiding he refuses to stay isolated his behavior was anything but godly but his heart longed for relationship the outward behavior was not the issue It was when his heart opened up and said, God, let me receive your forgiveness. And that's David's remarkable insight, which leads to spiritual restoration. And his restoration lies in realizing that what separates him from God, from spiritual health, isn't his sin, but it's his hiding. What separates him, what keeps him from growing to maturity, is not his sin, first of all, but it's his hiding. It's his isolation. Spiritual formation, spiritual maturity isn't so much about seeing less evidence of sin, but instead it lies in our response to the evidence of sin. How do we respond to the evidence? Well, in our natural selves, we'd rather deal with our shortcomings and our failure by shifting the blame. We're going to assign blame to someone else. Or we rationalize it, right? We say, well... Yes, I did this, but it's really not so bad. Look at what so-and-so did. Or we seek to avoid culpability and just distraction and diversion. We change the channel. Or we walk around morbidly obsessed about our failures. We turn inward and we feed constantly upon our guilt. And what that causes us to do is it causes us to vow to balance the scales. That once we do better... Once there's enough time between my past sin and now, then I can begin to pray again. Then I can begin to approach God. Isolation, hiding, diverting attention leads to spiritual illness. But honesty, coming out from hiding, repentance leads to spiritual health. You see, the key isn't getting better. And in fact, the more and more that we focus upon and obsess about getting better, the less better we're going to become. It's not the right approach. It's coming back to the gospel over and over. It's actually presuming upon God's grace and saying, you know what, when I came into my life of Christ, there was forgiveness. There was the gospel. And I want that again. It's coming back over and over. It's renewing the basic transaction of grace. That is Jesus saying, my life for yours, my death for yours. Because of him, you don't need to run and hide anymore. Because of him, because of his life, because of what he has done on your behalf, you are loved forever. You are forgiven forever. David finally begins to experience this. David begins to finally believe this. And what does he experience? He says, many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous, Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Instead of bones wasting away, instead of groaning all day long, there is rejoicing, there is gladness, there is resting in God's unfailing love which surrounds him. And that's, friends, spiritual maturity. And that's the key insight to spiritual formation. It's coming back over and over to that simple truth that through Jesus you are loved eternally and to rest in that, to experience that, to believe that so that it begins to well up and causes you to rejoice, to be glad, to delight in God's unfailing love, to let Him surround you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would change us. Wherever we are this morning, even if we're not ready to call ourselves a Christian. We have guilt in our lives. We have shame in our lives. We have places in our lives that we wish we performed better. Lord, wherever we are, I pray that you would find us. You would find us with your unfailing love, that we would learn not to look at ourselves, not to look at our feet while we're trying to dance, but just to enjoy you, just to sit and experience your grace. And Lord, let that change us. Let us live out of gratitude and obey because we are loved and that we love you rather than to try and earn anything. Lord, we pray that we would be a church that sits and receives the gospel over and over. And as we confess our faith, as we come to the table, let us do exactly that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.